later on, we will be having a uh, campfire time as well, and I will be telling you a little bit about that at the end of this session uh, with Hank. But we, once again, are so very privileged to uh, have as our speaker the host of the Bible Masters from Answer Man broadcast. And I remember when I was first listening to him, one of the things that I would always try to do is I'd ask myself, now how would I answer that question? And then see and compare. And by that, I learned so much. I learned how little I knew (laughs) and how wrong often I was. But it was always a challenge. And I admired that. I always wanted to be able to give an answer in the gentleness and respect that he would come across on the radio as I had heard him for so many years and have been so encouraged in my faith and my walk. And so I hope that you'll consider tuning in sometimes at uh, 6.30 a.m., uh, AM 6.30, I should say, at 3.05 p.m. in the afternoon. I don't expect you to get up in the middle of the night, but uh, you can listen to him streaming on the web, too. Uh, not only on our website, because the messages will be uploaded there, but uh, on uh, equip.org. And that's probably a website that I have frequented often when asked about uh, aberrant teachings, false beliefs, and I hope that you'll take advantage of that as well. So, without taking more of his time, I'd like to introduce and let's give Hank a warm welcome once again. Enjoyed this time so much. I have personally been encouraged and edified and uh, blessed by being with this congregation. This has been one of the highlights of my year, quite frankly, and uh, I'm I'm, I'm truly, truly blessed to be here today. I want to talk to you tonight about a biblical view of wealth. Uh, Pastor and I were talking earlier on in the conference about one of our favorite passages that comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, where the apostle says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from Christ and is by faith. I want to know Him and share in the resurrection. But as Pastor pointed out to me, the thing that touched his heart was what Paul says. Not only the fellowship of His resurrection, but the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow or other to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And coming from the Apostle Paul, it is even more striking in that he must most certainly have been the most radically converted man. He had everything that the world could offer. He had power, he had position, he had 
prosperity. And then he can say, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And then say, I consider it pure rubbish. That is a glorious transformation. The subject tonight, I think, is transcendently important. And I'd like to cash it out for you by giving you a biblical view of wealth. But I also want to start today by pointing out that a false theology of wealth has captivated the minds of literally millions of Christians. Consider the words of some of the most famous and prolific teachers in the church today. John Hagee, who says that John 1.38 tells us that Jesus turned to those who were following and said, Come with me. And they said, Where dwellest thou? And he said, Come and see. And Jesus took the crowd with him to stay in his house. Then says John Hagee, that meant that Jesus had a big house. John Hagee goes on to say that Jesus wore designer clothing. Indeed, a designer robe. Oral Roberts wrote a book titled, How I Learned That Jesus Was Not Poor. Frederick Price, another prolific prosperity teacher, says this, The Bible says that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's the reason why I drive a Rolls Royce. I'm following in Jesus' steps. T.D. Jakes, another prolific prosperity teacher, says, quote, There are certain truths that transcend all principles. And giving to get is one of them. Even the notion of break-even giving would be ridiculous in the extreme. It would be ridiculous for me to pray that God would give it back to you because... If all he was going to do was give it back to you, you ought to keep it. That's ridiculous. If you got $100 or $1,000 and you were going to get $1,000, I tell you what, you just broke even. You could have kept the $1,000 and not gone through all the trouble. Close quote. Gloria Copeland says this, Give $10 and receive $1,000. Give $1,000 and receive $100,000. I know you can multiply, but I want you to see it in black and white how tremendous the hundredfold return is. Give one house and receive 100 houses or one house worth a hundred times as much. Give one airplane and receive one hundred times the value of the airplane. Give one car 
and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. Again, close quote. Gloria Copeland conveniently skips the part in verse 30, by the way, about receiving persecutions. Not only so, she neglects what is written five verses earlier, where Jesus warns it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. The multiplication envisioned in Mark 30 is spiritual, not physical. Obviously, metaphorical, not literal. To take Jesus literally in Mark 10.30 is to reduce the passage to a logical absurdity. It would be one thing for God to promise you a hundred to one return when it comes to houses. It's quite another to promise a hundred to one return when it comes to wives and children. I don't know about you, but that might be too much of a good thing. Another famous prosperity preacher once preached this very message, and I want to draw attention to him specifically, because then something happened. He lost it all. The glitz, the glamour, the gold, well, they all vanished. So did the cheering crowds. Almost overnight, the riches were replaced with rags, and stripped of his star status, He found himself alone with the Bible. That's what he says. I spent months reading every word that Jesus spoke. I wrote them out over and over. I read them over and over again. There is no way, if you take the whole counsel of God's word, that you can equate riches or material things as a sign of God's blessing. I have asked God to forgive me for preaching earthly prosperity. Jesus did not teach riches were a sign of God's blessing. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Jim Baker, who in 1989 was convicted of 24 counts of fraud, continued with these stirring words. It's time the call from the pulpit be changed from who wants a life of pleasure, good things, new homes, cars, material possessions, to who will come forward to accept Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Spurgeon said it best. The old covenant, he said, is a covenant of prosperity, the new covenant is a covenant of adversity whereby we are being weaned from the present world and made meat for the world to come. That by way of prologue to point out, to underscore in red as it were, how significant a biblical view of wealth is and how a biblical view of wealth has been prostituted in our epoch of time. The place to begin for a biblical view of wealth is Psalm 24, verse 1. 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell therein. It is crucial to understand that God is the landlord. We are but tenants. The biblical motif is holding all that we have with open hands. Our time, our talent, our treasure, so that God can take out and put in as he sees fit. We are not owners. We are stewards. And we will give an accounting for what we have done with what we have been given. Secondly, we do well to remember that the accumulation of wealth is not the purpose or the calling of any of God's children. Yes, God prospers some, and he places others in more humble circumstances. And so we see that poverty does not equal piety, but neither do riches equate to righteousness. If there was a one-to-one ratio between godliness and prosperity, then the godliest people in the world will also be the wealthiest people in the world. But any check of the Forbes 500 quickly dashes that kind of an illusion. Thirdly, I want to point out that your attitude towards wealth should mirror that of the Apostle Paul, who I began tonight quoting. There are several nuggets in the book of Philippians that I think are extraordinarily helpful. First, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Two chapters earlier, he instructs his friends on the godly use of resources. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, Paul in Romans said, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Paul 
admonishes us to help one another, to consider what we have been given as an opportunity to give to others. Perhaps I am more afraid as a Christian leader of my own prosperity than I am of virtually anything else. It is an insidious, intoxicating trap. And I know that one day I will stand before God and give an account for what I did with what He gave me. I shudder to think about such things. I remember being in Brazil, visiting our office in Brazil, and being hosted in a five-star hotel. And sitting, as it were, by the window, having a sumptuous meal, and looking outside, and seeing people starving. And I remember walking through the slums. I took my watch off. I took my rings off. I was told that it wasn't safe to have any jewelry on because someone would cut my hand off to get it. Brazil has changed uh, dramatically in terms of its economic situation over the last few years. But back then I remember how horrible it was to walk from that posh restaurant and hotel into the slums and I still remember crying and I still remember getting back on the plane and praying Lord when I get back to Orange County California where I lived in an upscale community Lord let me not forget this Let me not go back to being intoxicated, overindulged, overstimulated, forgetting about the needs of others. And I dare not allow any of you to think that I am an example. I am learning, I am struggling with the same things that we all struggle with as those who are prosperous. The poorest among us are prosperous by world standards. And one day, we will give an account. You know, Paul makes clear that there's only one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, We can't build any other foundation other than the one that is Jesus Christ. But on that foundation, we can build using gold, costly stones, silver, or wood, hay, and stubble. And the day of the Lord will reveal how we built. Were we building monuments to ourselves? Ultimately, this is a matter of the heart. I in no way want to communicate, as I alluded to earlier, that righteousness equates to poverty. I am fully convinced of Christian capitalism. I append the word Christian to capitalism, because capitalism has to do with ingenuity. 
with invention, with creativity. But Christian capitalism means responsibility associated with wealth. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have. I used to come to Tacoma, Washington and visit one of the wealthiest men in the world. And I'd stay in his house sometimes for three or four days at a time. And we would talk. And he was quite elderly at the time. And he often talked to me about his greatest burden. And that is he had been entrusted with a great amount of wealth. And he knew that one day there'd be a time of accounting. And he wondered what would happen when he left this earth What would others do with that wealth? Who would they give it to? What causes would they support? Oh, wealth is at once a blessing. It's also a burden. Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to herds. For riches are not forever nor does a crown endure to all generations. Paul goes on to illustrate what happens when God's people use their resources in a way that honors and glorifies their Creator. He says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospel, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. Translated, you cannot outgive the Lord. I also want to mention, and this is a bit of a detour, but I don't want to forget this. I want to mention that if we lend, we should do so with kindness. If we borrow, we should do so with prudence. And we should remember, as a debtor nation now, And as Americans drowning in debt, that the borrower is servant to the lender. So we should take very seriously stewardship in the area of borrowing. I myself have made some huge mistakes in my life in that area. Uh, Mistakes that I wish that I could do over. And yet, the beauty of the Christian faith is I've found over and over again that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Sometimes you think, if only I hadn't, and then you see that God does indeed use all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We need to remind ourselves that while we have been promised an eternal inheritance far beyond our wildest expectations, God's promise for us on this earth sometimes takes a far darker hue 
says Paul, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And finally, we need to consider both the warning and the glorious hope that the Apostle joyfully lays out for us in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Why? Their mind, says Paul, is on earthly things. What's wrong with that? Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you you who I love and long for, my joy, my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Wealth comes from the Lord. We shouldn't get too attached to it. What you have used for the furtherance of the gospel, used for the betterment of those around you, And then expect that hardship will come your way. And never forget that one day Jesus will roll up this earth like a ball of yarn and will bestow upon us a body that will never decay, never hurt, never be in need of food, never need gold, never need earthly riches. In other words, lead your life here below as a responsible steward so that one day at the judgment God himself will richly reward you I think of the words of Christ do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal but Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are full of light, well, you have light in your life. But if your eyes are full of darkness, how great is that darkness? Then says Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I want to talk for a moment tonight as well about demographic trends. This may seem out of character for a message like this, but I think you'll get the relevance. We have not done a good job from the pulpit of teaching biblical principles of stewardship. 
a biblical perspective on wealth that was not so in past generations. If we think about the war generations, what we call the GI generation and the silent generation that went through the Korean War, the GI generation was born 1905 to 1924. And it is the oldest living generation in our country, about 70 million people. They're one of the wealthiest generations as well, about $11 trillion of wealth. The silent generation, 52 million, born between 1925 and 1944. The reason I cite the war generations is they had values focused on faith and family and freedom. They were a generation that worked hard and saved diligently and gave liberally to causes consistent with their values. But what happened to the next generation, the generation called the Boomer generation? Sometimes we refer to them as the Woodstock generation. That is indeed my generation, people born between 1945 and 1964. Well, they question the values of the previous generation, and they have become one of the largest consumer generations in the history of humanity. We learned how to consume. We became consumerites. And while the legacy of boomers is still unfolding, it does not appear that the boomers will be as generous as the war generation. And then we have the Gen Xers, born between 1965 and 1984. They range in age from 25 to 44 today. They're the Internet generation, they're the MTV generation. Again, they're overeducated, they're oversaturated, they're overstimulated. And most now a majority do not darken the doorway of churches. They've rejected the God of their fathers. And then there are the millennial generation, also known as Generation Y, born between 1985 and 2004. Due to divorce, most have two sets of parents, eight grandparents. I give you those statistics as a sober consequence of our failure to teach a theology of giving. The war generations are now in the last ten years of life. Their passing is going to leave a huge giving void in the church. The fact is simply this. We have fallen short in our teaching and our theology of money. We have listened to the siren song of prosperity preachers, or we haven't paid attention at all. The fact is this, that the largest givers in our history are heading towards death and retirement and will be replaced by a generation of non-givers. The fact is, 
that the current political and social climates also do not bode well for giving. And so we have a call to action tonight. That call is to make sure that we reach upcoming generations with a crystal clear mandate regarding biblical stewardship. We dare not abdicate that responsibility. There is no telling what we can accomplish in our generation if we, like the war generations, may but catch the joy of contagious giving. We would be empowered to spread the gospel around the globe. We would be enabled to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick. Like the war generation who founded great centers of Christian education, who established countless hospitals, who funded relief organizations, we may yet, like them, leave an indelible mark on our generation. It all depends on whether we have a biblical or a sub-biblical view of wealth. God has not called us to find formulas to extract wealth. We must have the moral fiber, the courage to speak out and resist a prosperity movement that has utterly eradicated the foundational principles of the Christian faith. A prosperity gospel that we have now transported abroad. I have seen with anguish people in China and Singapore and Korea who have gotten out of ancestor worship eclectic sort of religious constructs and they are just coming to a knowledge of the truth and the prosperity preachers come to town and now they think that Christ is a means to their end and now they think that the object is to come to the master's table not for the love of the master but to get what's on the master's table. And so the gospel is turned on its head. And I've seen with tears that we now have major prosperity gospel preachers coming from the Orient. And we're now listening to them on television in America. It's the same tired message. Sounds good. It preaches well, but it is an empty and a dangerous message. Because ultimately, in the great paradigm shift that I alluded to yesterday, there comes that time where suddenly there's a pain in the pericardium. Or there's a crashing of glass. 
And instantaneously we are transported from this world to the next. And then everything we worked for that is temporary and insignificant no longer matters. What matters is that we walked by a beggar day after day. And he was insignificant to us. What matters is that we didn't care for God, we cared for goods. What matters is now we spend an eternity separated from the goodness of God. Now again, I do not want to preach legalism or works righteousness. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the biblical ethic is that while the gospel is free... We are called to take up our cross and daily follow him. We are called to something real. We're not called to a counterfeit. The early Christian church modeled the behavior that Paul enunciates in the book of Philippians, which was the heart of my message tonight. And they turned an empire upside down. They weren't playing church. They really meant it. They counted not their lives worthy, even unto death. As a result of that, they impacted the culture. They turned a culture upside down. And then something happened. All of a sudden it became wonderful to be a Christian. It was popular in the culture. And then people came to church for all the wrong reasons. It was the prosperity message all over again. Find your wife, find a better job. The tide had turned. And people came to Christ not to take up their cross and daily follow Him. But people came to Christ for all the good things that Christ has to offer. This ultimately is a matter of the heart. Again, it is not an indictment against those who have God's resources. Riches do not equate to unrighteousness. It is always a matter of the heart. A rich person can help a poor person. A poor person can't help another poor person. There's nothing wrong with having goods. But there is something drastically wrong with having our hearts 
in the wrong place. This is a difficult message for me to give. It is particularly a difficult message for me to give in America. We have presidential candidates that are promising us all kinds of things. They're promising us that our better days are in the future. If we follow their paradigms, we'll get back to prosperity. But as Christians, our hope does not lie in political paradigms. Our hope ultimately is in a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. If there's one thing that I can underscore in this message and even the message that I'll give tomorrow, it is to live with eternity in mind. It is to develop an eternal perspective. Eyes that can look beyond time and space. Eyes that think about what it will be when we stand before God and give an account for what we did. I want to close by reminding all of us that while we cannot work for our salvation, we can certainly work from our salvation. Which is to say that there are degrees of reward in heaven and degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me, and I give to everyone according to what he has done. This is why Jesus pled with his disciples, his followers. Do not labor for that which perishes. Labor for that which is eternal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Develop an eternal perspective. For life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Only one life. Soon twill be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. This universe will soon give birth like the womb of a woman giving birth to a new earth that's our inheritance our inheritance is to live with the resurrected Christ in a restored universe in resurrected bodies forever never ending it is something that we cannot conceive of it is beyond our ability to comprehend and yet we get glimpses of glory as we read through scripture that are truly intoxicating to the point that Paul actually says when he talks about being absent from the body present with the Lord that to be present with the Lord is far better and that's just in a temporary heaven 
those who die today are not in an eternal heaven. They're in a temporal heaven. They're awaiting an eternal heaven. That will only happen after Jesus appears the second time. Then the problem of sin and Satan will forever be removed. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Then the universe will be restored. Then we will be resurrected. Then we will have what we long for. Paradise lost will indeed become paradise restored. And we will forever enjoy the riches of glory. Now that's real. That's what animated the first century church. That's what caused them to become lions of the faith. That's what animated them, allowed them to face the tyrant's brandish steel, the lion's gory mane, the fires of a thousand deaths. Because they knew just as certainly as they knew they had flesh upon their bones that they, like their Savior, would rise. That caused them to be utterly transformed from scared, scattered disciples to lions of the faith. May we follow in their train. And as I close and spend just a moment speaking with the Lord, Please remember that what they did, we can do. We sometimes look at the universe, we look at the world in fatalistic terms, as though everything in history goes like this. It's not how history works. History works like this. Paul calls it birth pains. Men can't relate to that exactly, but we kind of understand what that means. There are times of great intense pain, and then there are times of relief and peace. And it will continue like that until our Lord returns. And the reason that's so important to grasp is that there is enough dynamite, dunamis, power in this room. Forget the rest of Christianity. Forget the millions of other Christians and congregations. There is enough dunamis in this room alone to turn the world upside down. Social revolutions today start with one person that rips up a credit card and takes on a big banking institution and it goes viral and they change the policy of a huge institution don't think that you are insignificant don't wait for the hired gun don't look to the prosperity preachers. Certainly don't look to me. Recognize that God has called you. 
Who knows if you will be the person that prays for the next Billy Graham. We have no concept of what can be accomplished if we live the consecrated life. And we have no right to be fatalists. We do not know, brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ will appear a second time. The Bible gives us nary a clue. The Bible only says that he will appear a second time. Because he had the power to lay down his life and take it up again. We can depend on that with all our lives. So we must live our lives as though Christ could appear at any time. We must prepare, however, as though his coming may be a long way off. Maybe not even in our lifetimes. Because if we don't have that ethic, we won't prepare for our children. We won't train them properly. We'll be looking about escaping. Christian life is not about escaping. In this life you will have trouble, said Jesus. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to think together. And Lord, I confess before you and those gathers here that I have not attained. That words are cheap. Father, I pray that you will do a work in my heart. Just as you do a work in our hearts collectively. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you will be pleased with us when we stand before you in that great assize. O oh Lord, we long for you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will give you many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Father, we look forward expectantly to a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And again, Lord, we, we offer this time to you, not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.